Well, good morning, boys. Falls upon us, getting dark out there, isn't it? Like the late, great Yogi Berra said, it's getting late early. <laughs> Speaking of baseball, how about them Cubbies last night, huh? How many Cubs fans do we have in here? Yeah, there's a few of us. This is the year, Cardinals fans. Watch out. <laughs> 107 years in the waiting. Uh, well, again, so thankful all of you are here. And as usual, I am so thankful uh, that I can be with you this morning as we come together as men to open up the sacred text and study uh, the Word of God together. Now, this is our fourth study so far in the book of Romans. And today, all we will be talking about is the judgment of God and His wrath on sinners. So if this is your first time to second, good morning. <laughs> Truly, if you've read beforehand, you know we got quite a text in our hands, a very heavy-duty topic. And it's a topic that's very hard for us to think about, and it's certainly one that's hard for us to apply to ourselves. But Paul's intent is that we should contemplate this topic, and it's extremely necessary for us to apply it to ourselves, and we'll see why. Now, just to frame up the passage, uh, if you were here two weeks ago, remember Sandy, uh, he taught on uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, where Paul essentially talks about the essence of the gospel. And you'll remember that a key phrase there, uh, according to Paul, is that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel. Now, right, that right there, that, that phrase is the theme verse for the entire book of Romans, that the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, if you think about it, that's a very peculiar way to describe the gospel. He didn't say the mercy or the grace or the love of God has been revealed, all of which would be accurate. But he says that the righteousness of God has been revealed, and he says that purposefully. Why does he say it? Well, you're just going to have to pay attention. We're going to talk about it at the very end, so uh, drink your coffee and we'll get to it, I promise. But that's what Sandy talked about. That phrase is the thematic verse of the entire book of Romans. Now, if you heard last week, Dan started out the first major subpoint in the book of Romans. And it goes from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And it's very much the judgment of God. Now, we say, goodness gracious, you know, three chapters of judgment. Paul, take a coffee break, sir. I mean, what's the deal, man? I mean, goodness. Why does he do that? Well, taking into account, there are 7.1 billion people on the face of the earth. And he wants every single one of us to know two very important truths. One, all of us are sinners and are under the just condemnation of God. And two, our only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those two conclusions are the most important conclusions that a human being could ever come to in this life. But the truth is, we're sinners. We get busy. Life gets busy. Family life gets busy. Work gets busy. We forget about those things. We start majoring on the minors. We know that. I know that. Paul knows that. And so that's why he belabors the point for three chapters, because he knows that eternity hangs in the balance. So my friends, as we walk through these next couple of weeks through this subsection on judgment, I know it will feel like Paul is just raking us over the coals, all right? And I know we'll have the temptation to simply gloss over that and just wait till we get to chapter 3, verse 21. Well, don't do that because it's purposeful. Paul wants us to sit in the reality of God's judgment. 
He wants us to, to marinate in that, but just know He has taken us someplace glorious. But first, we have to marinate in this. Okay, so that's where we've been, that's where we're going, and that's where we are. So before we dive into the text and parse it out, uh, let's first read the text and let's pray together. So Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape judgment? Or do you presume on the richness of on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Let's go together in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for this morning where we can come together as brothers in Christ. Your adopted sons into Your royal family. Where we as sinners, but justified sinners, can come to You and lay at Your throne at Your feet in peace knowing that Jesus Christ is the solid rock in which we stand, and even though we are sinners, we are blanketed and covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that this morning, through this very hard text, that You would give us a peace, but that, Father, You would also let us experience the severity of what You speak through Paul to us. And Father, we need Your Spirit for this. Let us not just be informed by Your Word, but let us be transformed by it. And we pray all these things in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, like I said before, Paul spends three chapters talking about God's judgment. He wants to address every single person on the face of the earth. And he does so by addressing specifically three different types of people in which all of humanity will find themselves in one way or another. And he does does this first to communicate one very important truth to us all, and it's found in Again, chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, and it's this. All have sinned and all are under the wrath of God. All have sinned and are under the wrath of God. Now, in this little subsection, Paul tells us uh, those three different people groups that he addresses. 
Now it's important for us to get a grasp on these different types of people in which all of us will find ourselves in one way or another. The first group is the pagan Gentile. We find them in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and this is the group that, if you hear last week, Dan talked about. These are the folks that we would call licentious, atheists, godless pagans who practice wickedness and unrighteousness. They know who God is because God has revealed Himself through nature, but in the hardness of their hearts they've rejected God and have chosen a life of wickedness, but not only that, they actually celebrate and support the other guys who do lawlessness and wickedness. Basically, the people we pray that our kids do not bring us home for us to meet as their parents, right? Those are the people that Paul is talking about in chapter 1. Now the second group, the group that Todd will be talking about next week, are the religious Jews, and we find them in chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, uh, or 17 through 29, rather. Now this is the primary opponent of Paul in most of his letters, particularly the letter to the Galatians. Paul is going to talk about them, and he's going to talk about their sin problem, but not yet, so come back next week. In our passage, verses 1 through 16, Paul addresses the moralist, or the religious Jew. Now, to be fair, there are some scholars out there that would lump our passage in with the Jews. Now, some scholars say that, but I do think there's some reasons for us not to do that, for us to come to the conclusion that Paul is addressing an entirely different group, the moralist. Reason number one, Paul does not specifically address the religious Jews until verse 17, okay? That's the first instance where he directly addresses the religious Jew. So, you know, that's an obvious fact. If he were addressing Jews in our passage, he would say, hey, Jews, but he doesn't. He doesn't do that until verse 17, so that's one reason. Reason number two, and this is important, and we'll see why in a second. Reason two is if Paul were addressing the Jews in our passage, that would mean that his only description of Gentiles would be like those people in chapter 1. The godless, the wicked, the atheists, the people who have outright rejected God. That would be his only description of the Gentile nation. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not seem like a fair assessment, right? That would be like us saying all Alabama fans are in the category of Harvey Updike, right? And that's just not the case. I'm sorry, Auburn fans. Not all Alabama fans are going to poison Tumor's tree, right? Not all Alabama fans are evil. I'm sorry, Auburn fans. But that's the same thing here. Paul is saying, listen, not all Gentiles are like the Gentiles in chapter 1. Not all Gentiles are wicked, godless people. Take, for example, the personal tutor of Emperor Nero. Nero, who, by the way, was a wicked Gentile, but not his tutor, Seneca. If you go back and just look at the life of Seneca, he wasn't a Christian, but he was a very moral person. And he would have concluded rightly with Paul that those pagans which he mentions in chapter 1 are very much godless and wicked people. So not all Gentiles are these wicked, just godless deviants that we see in chapter 1. Now, the third reason, Paul says the phrase, O man, twice in this passage. Okay, now, O man is a catch-all phrase. Now, since Paul is not talking to the Jews, and since he's not talking about those pagans that he talks about in chapter 1, who is included in this catch-all statement? Well, the rest of humanity, right? The rest of us. Moral Gentiles or religious Gentiles. Moralists. Now, why is that important? Well, by my estimation, there's not too many of us in here that are Jews. If you are Jewish, we're so thankful that you're here. And also, by my estimation, there's not too many of us that are murdering people on the weekends, right? So who's Paul addressing? He's addressing people like you and me, moral people. 
Now, most certainly we can apply what Paul says later that we're going to study next week in chapter 2 about the religious Jews. We can apply what he says to them to ourselves because we know as Christians we often fall in the same sin patterns as the religious Jews of the Bible. But we most certainly can apply what Paul says here to the moralists, to the religious Gentiles, to ourselves. Okay, So this is the group that he's addressing. Now, what is the particular sin that he's addressing? Well, he tells us in verse 1. He says the sin of the moralist is hypocrisy. The sin of the moralist is hypocrisy. He tells that to us in verse 1. Now, I want us to think about for a moment the feeling that we experience when we experience unmet expectations. Right? It's not altogether fun. Uh, Sometimes it's fun for us if it happens to someone else. For example, um, I'm just going to confess to you that I am one of those uppity, obnoxious Ole Miss fans that the rest of you absolutely hate. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I even got the Ole Miss belt to prove it. You know what I'm talking about? I was one of those people that after Ole Miss demolished Alabama, by the way, that we thought we were going to go win the national championship. Well, let me tell you, the Black Bears did not meet my expectations in Gainesville. That was not fun. Ole Miss fans now know what it feels like to be volunteers, right? I'll tell, you what's not, I'll tell you what's not fun either, is that the pastoral staff has not let me forget it. Especially Dick Kane, who's an Alabama fan, and Todd Erickson, who's a Gator fan. I watched the game at Todd Erickson's house. I cannot tell you how many Gator chomps he gave me. Absolutely miserable. Sometimes unmet expectations can be comical, right? We, we've all experienced or, or, have, or have planned for really great family Christmas vacations, but Somewhere along the line, it's turned into a Griswold family Christmas (laughs) with a proverbial squirrel in the tree, and it just goes disastrously. And we laugh about them, you know, three years later. I think that's why so much of us like that movie. So sometimes it can be comical, but sometimes when we, we, we experience unmet expectations, when reality diverges from our prior held expectations, it can be tragic. An example of that would be our life in the faith. And this is what I mean by that. All of us as Christians love Jesus Christ. We desire Him. We desire His Word. It's honey to our lips. We desire His command. We want to follow Him zealously as Christians. That is the desire of our hearts. But then reality sets in and we remember that we're still sinners. We're justified sinners. We're covered in the righteousness of Christ, but we're still sinners and we're going to fail in those desires. And when that happens, it causes us pain in our hearts. And that's, that's a good thing, but it's still painful. And I think that's why Paul says what he does in Romans 7 when he says, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. What's he describing there? He's describing that pain of the divergence of reality and what we desire as Christians. And all of us will experience that in this life. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about here is when people concoct some half-baked theology or have a heart that coddles that divergence, that is satisfied with it. And that's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not the sin of doing evil and celebrating others who do evil, but the sin of hypocrisy is when we do and think evil but condemn others that do evil. That's the sin of hypocrisy. Now, we've got to understand there is a difference between making a judgment of what is good and evil and being judgmental. Right now, liberal America is just attacking the evangelical church. Even liberal Christians are. 
I read an article recently in the Huffington Post where they basically said the evangelical church is evil and heartless for calling homosexuality sinful. And sometimes we can become dismayed by that. I mean, are they right? Well, no, they're not right because there's a difference between making a judgment and being judgmental. It is our moral obligation as Christians to lovingly announce to the world what is good and what is evil in the sight of the Lord. It would be cruel for us not to do that. And that's what Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. But it becomes hypocrisy when we place ourselves in the position of judge and condemn others, which we should never do, all the while neglecting to judge ourselves. And that's what Jesus denounces in his treatment of hypocrites in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And my friends, if we learned anything from the Garden of Eden, when the original sin of Adam was pride, which manifested in him rejecting God and placing himself as judge, the decider of what is good and evil, we know in our sinfulness that all of us at one time or another have struggled with the sin of hypocrisy. And so when Paul uses that word, that singular form of you in our passage, we can most definitely read ourselves into the text. Paul says God is not put off by hypocrisy and moralism. All have sinned and all are under the wrath of God, including the moralist. Now hopefully God through Paul has our attention. Now in the next couple of points in our passage, Paul essentially puts on his lawyer suit and he debriefs us. And he lets us know the severity of the situation. So in verses 1 through 5, he gives us his indictment. And in verses 6 through 10 and 12 through 16, he gives us the support for his indictment, all the while showing us the complete foolishness of uh, hypocrisy and moralism in the first place. Now, the first bit of evidence that he gives us is that our hypocrisy is inexcusable and God's judgment is inescapable. We see that in verses 1 through 5. Now, he tells us four very important things in these verses, and I'm going to try to get through them quickly. First and foremost, in verses 1 through 3, he says that if you go the way of the moralist, the hypocrite, we deceive ourselves. Now, the key verse there um, is verse 3, so go ahead and look at that. He says... Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now that's a rhetorical question, right? Paul is trying to tell us how foolish it is to go the way of the moralist and to hang our hats on our own morality and our own self-righteousness and live the life of the hypocrite. He says it's absolute foolishness and you deceive yourselves. Now how might we deceive ourselves? Well, some of y'all might remember the famous... Uh, and really funny comedian W.C. Fields, um, a long time ago. If you know anything about W.C., the man was not a Christian, but on his deathbed in the hospital, one day he found himself reading the Bible. And on that day, his best friend happened just to come by the hospital to see him, and he walked into the hospital room and was taken back by the fact that W.C. was reading the Bible. And he, and he calmly said, W.C., have you, have you found God? W.C. closed the Bible and said, nah. I'm just looking for loopholes. <laughs> and many of us have been there before looking for those loopholes, right? But what a description of sinful man. We're down deep in our hearts. We think somehow, way, there is such a thing as a loophole through which we can escape the omniscient, just, and righteous judgment of God. And Paul tells us in chapter 3, the only way that we would ever escape judgment is through the cross of Christ. There is no such thing as a loophole. But still, in our sin, we desperately search for those loopholes. 
Now, what's an example of one of these loopholes? Well, just what the moralists and the hypocrites are doing in this passage. Surely, how many times, and I've done this before, okay, so I'm throwing myself under the bus too. How many times have we come in a room like this, and Sandy's teaching, and he's talking about sin and judgment, right? And we think to ourselves inwardly, man, you know, I knew I got some stuff to work on. But thank the Lord I'm not like Bob over there. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that guy's one lustful dude. I mean, my goodness, absolute wretchedness. Or thank goodness I'm not like Brad over there. I mean, he sent hate mail to Hugh Freeze after the Florida game. I mean, that's one hateful sucker. Thank goodness I'm not like that. Paul says, listen, if you're thinking that way, that just ain't going to cut mustard. And if you think that way, you're deceiving yourselves. And here's why. Because God is not put off or confused or tricked by us pointing our fingers at the sinful actions of others. Because the reality is the heart of the matter is very much our hearts. And this is what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is the Kimbrough illustration or uh, version, so bear with me. Jesus says, hey, I'm glad that you haven't committed adultery. I'm glad, I'm, I'm very thankful that you have not cheated on your wife. But when is the last time you lusted in your hearts? When's the last time you were headed to work in the mornings and you're driving down Poplar and in your peripheral vision you saw a shapely woman in her jogging suit and you lusted after her? Hey, I'm so thankful that you haven't murdered anybody. Seriously, I'm very thankful you're not killing people. But when's the last time you harbored unrighteous anger in your hearts because your wife or your children did not leave up, live up to your expectations? All of us everywhere in this room have been there before. And Jesus says the heart of the matter is very much your heart. Now, Paul essentially says the very same thing. You'll remember in his description of the pagans in chapter 1, most of the sins that he lists are not actions, but rather their attitudes. This is what he says. He says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, insolent, haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And we say to ourselves, man, are you kidding me? That's like my checklist of last week. <laughs> All those things went through my heart. They're not actions, they're attitudes. And that's why Paul says, listen, if you go the way of the moralist and the hypocrite, it's absolute foolishness. Because in your attempts to make yourself feel better and to justify yourself before God by pointing your finger at the sinful actions of others, you miss the fact that you're just as sinful as the pagans in your heart because the heart of the matter is very much your heart. So Paul says the, the moralist deceives themselves. Secondly, he says the hypocrite, the moralist, presume upon God. Presume upon God. There's such a phrase, it's uh, is, is called historical singularity. Now that's what, this is what that means. There are certain things that will happen in our life that will only happen once. So for example, your physical birth. Unless it's a sci-fi movie, that will only happen one time, right? You'll only be physically born once. Another example, your death. You'll only physically die once in this life. Another historical singularity, the judgment day of God. And Paul says in verse 4, when we presume upon God, His character, things like His patience and His kindness, what he is saying is we're neglecting the reality of a historical singularity. We say to ourselves, oh, because God hasn't judged me yet, because He's kind, that judgment will never come. Paul says it's foolishness to think that way. Sometimes we think that way just in life. When I first got married, I presumed upon the kindness of my wife uh, by leaving my laundry on the floor. All right? You know, the first time it happened, 
She said, sweetie, could you please put your dirty laundry in the hamper? I said, yes, sweetums, of course I will. I'm so sorry that I did that. Second time it happened, similar. Sweetie, could you please put your dirty laundry in the hamper? Of course, wife, you know, I love you. Of course I'll do that. Third time, she went from being an angel to the Terminator, okay? It's like, laundry hamper, yes, Miss Kimberly. <laughs> Just terrifying. Just because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen. And Paul says that in verse 4. When you presume upon the character of God, first off, you miss the purposes of His kindness and patience in the first place. It's not so that we can continue on in our sin, but it's for the purposes of repentance. Because that historical singularity, the judgment day of God, is coming. And he says it's the self-righteous person who knows God, who believes in God, understands God's benevolence, but does not see His need for Him. And Paul says, listen, we very much need Him. Thirdly, he says the moralist stores up wrath for himself in 5a. A friend of mine in college, we're part of an accountability group. There's absolutely no way that you could ever meet this guy, so I feel comfortable in telling you the story. I won't tell you his name. But we're in an accountability group, and uh, all of us were just sharing sins and struggles with each other. And this particular guy, his particular sin was lust. He lusted all the time. He was really having a hard time killing that, constantly thinking about it. And one day he came to our accountability group just completely frustrated and said, you know, I'm so tired of lusting in my heart. I'm just going to go ahead and look at pornography and just get everything out of the way because I'm tired of thinking about it. And when I was 18 years old, I was, you know, that kind of makes sense. (laughs) But looking back on it, how moronical is that way of thinking? All of us make compromises in our heart like that all the time, but seriously, how foolish is that? I mean, think about it. If you commit nine murders, you don't go on trial for one murder. You go on trial for nine. You don't get sentenced to one life sentence. You get sentenced to nine. It's kind of like debt. I had another buddy in college who was in severe debt, and he kept on taking out these just mindless loans. I mean, literally, he was like buying movies with money. He was taking, I mean, I was like, bro, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm already in debt. I don't think you know how debt works, man. I mean, who is your banker? Unbelievable. What's the problem with that? Because you continue to incur debt. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the unrepentant sinner stores up more and more and more and more wrath for himself. And John Piper says this is the scariest verse in all of Scripture, and I have to agree with him. Now, if I can go Presbyterian on you, I think the reason that we have this is so it would literally scare the hell out of us. Because that's the reality of what judgment will be like for the unrepentant sinner. And Paul says if you continue on in your hypocrisy and placing your hope in your own self-righteousness and your moralism, if you refuse to repent, to turn away from your sin and turn towards God, well, that's just proof that you have a hard heart, and you store up wrath for yourself. Now lastly, Paul says in 5b that the day of judgment is coming. I think God gives us a question here, a reflective question, and it's this. Are you living as a functional atheist, or are you living in light of eternity? Functional atheist, that means that we believe in God, we believe in eternity, but we do not live in light of it. Are we doing that? This verse is meant to throw cold water on every single one of us so we'd be sobered to the truth that that historical singularity is coming. Now thirdly, that's the indictment that Paul gives us. But thirdly and fourthly, Paul gives us the evidence for this indictment Then again shows us the foolishness, just the utter foolishness of hypocrisy and also moralism. 
Now, the first piece of evidence he gives us is found in verses 6 through 10, and it's this. God's judgment is righteous. Okay? God's judgment is righteous. I find that whenever I need a good laugh, I turn to one of the major news networks just to see the latest thing that Donald Trump has said. <laughs> I mean, that guy is wacky. You know, <laughs> I don't agree with him. But, I mean, you just cannot be help but be mesmerized by some of the weird things that that dude says. I mean, it's just hysterical. If you've been keeping up with a lot of the debates and whatnot, one of the things that he harps on over and over and over again is that our society needs to be more severe on illegal immigration. Now, I know that that's a big problem or an issue that we have to have smart people to think through, but he acts as if he's the only person that's ever thought about that issue. Seriously. I mean, over and over and over again. And his solution is to be more severe on illegal immigrants. Now, keep that in your mind because the next story I want to tell you about Donald Trump is this. He was in an interview not too long ago where this reporter, I uh, forget what the interview was about, but the reporter, I'll never forget this, the reporter asked him point blank, a very pointed question, Mr. Trump, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And this is what he said. People are surprised that I'm a Christian. <laughs> no kidding. He goes... I'm also a Presbyterian. There we go, fellas. Because I love God, I love my church, but forgiveness? No, I don't think I've ever asked God for forgiveness. If I do something wrong, I'll fix it. Why do I have to bring God into the picture? But you just love how humility spews from that man's lips. But this is essentially what he is saying, that he takes more seriously justice than God does. And the reason I bring that up is because I know in my own heart, and if you're like me, which you are because you're a sinner, sometimes we think like old Uncle Donald Trump. That we think God is going to grade on the curve. That somehow, someway, because we're relatively good people, God's going to go easy on us. Paul says, don't you dare think that way. It's dangerous. And here's why. God's judgment is righteous. And this is the first thing that he says in that regard and found in uh, verse 6, verse 5 and 6. God judges by deeds. In verse 5, he says that the judgment of God is righteous. Now, what in the Greek does that mean? That means that it's fair. It's upright. There is a standard and it's non-shifting, which means that all of us will have a fair judgment day. Well, how does God make that fair judgment? He tells us in verse 6, we are judged according to deeds. This is why Paul says that moralism and hypocrisy, if you hand your hat on that, is absolute absurd. It's absolute foolishness because I don't care who you are. You could be the religious Jew, the religious Gentile, the pagan down the street, or the moralist on the other side of the street. It doesn't matter because every single one of us will be judged according to the same grounds, our deeds. Now, if you haven't fallen asleep yet, it's at this point that you're thinking, that sounds kind of funny. I mean, what is... That almost sounds unchristian. Was that not what the Reformation was about? What in the world is Paul talking about here? It was 20 verses earlier that Paul taught that our rightness with God comes through faith and not through works. It can never come through works. So what in the world is Paul talking about here? Did he get it wrong? Well, one, let's give Paul some credit. All right, Let's give old Uncle Paul some credit. Paul did not forget what he said 20 verses earlier. Okay, He very much believes that. Nor did Paul change his mind. Paul is not a pregnant woman who at one moment wants vegetables for dinner and then at the exact next moment wants pickles and ice cream. Okay, He's not fickle. He's not changing his mind. So let's give Paul some credit. Two, if you don't like what Paul is saying, keep in mind that others teach the exact same thing. James teaches it in the book of James. Jesus Christ himself teaches it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. This is what Jesus says. 
that the Son of Man will repay each person according to, guess what? What He has done. So is the author and the perfecter of our faith, did He get it wrong? Well, of course not. So what's being said here? This is what's being said. Works are not the basis of our salvation. And that's the great news of the Gospel. But they are the evidence of a saving faith. And that's what Paul says through verses 7 through 10. Now, when Paul says what he does in verse 6, he's uh, referencing a very important chapter in the Old Testament, Psalm 62. Now, I would like for you to turn there um, because it is important. If you don't have your Bibles, mark it down and we'll look at it later. But this is a very important verse or chapter, and I want to read it to us. So when Paul says what he does in verse 6, he's, he's referencing this chapter. And this is what the psalmist David writes. Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. For Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone on my soul wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Put out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken twice, I've heard this. The power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And here's the key verse. For you will render to a man according to his work. That's the same teaching we see in Paul. That's the same teaching we see in Jesus. Now what is David getting at? The big question is, what is it that man has done? Well, if you paid attention on chapter 62, uh, King David describes two different sets of people. In verse 4 and verse 9 and 10, he describes a set of people much like those in verses 1 through 3 in our passage. Those who have set their hopes on themselves, their own righteousness, their riches, and therefore have presumed upon God and in David's terminology has shown contempt or have plotted against God. Then he goes on to describe another group of people, those who have turned to God, have rested in God, because they know a God alone is the source of salvation. So what does that tell us? Well, David is teaching what we know from the Gospels, that salvation comes through having faith alone in God alone. That's what Paul teaches in Galatians, uh, Romans, all over the place. He teaches that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. We're saved by faith alone. This is what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 33, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. That is the great news of the gospel, gang, that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But what David is saying here is that a saving faith is never alone. And he says if someone has a saving faith, it manifests the way in which they both perceive and live life. This is, why, this is why he says what he does in verses eight and, or 9 and 10 rather about the, the evildoers, as it were. That they've placed their, their righteousness, they, they placed their salvation on their own righteousness and on their own riches. They haven't trusted in God and that's manifested in the way that they think and the way they perceive life. But those who have placed their hopes in God for loan for salvation, 
It's manifested in the way they live life. They live a life, not perfectly, but one in which it's trusting in God. And this is what Paul teaches in our chapter. I love the way that John Stott explains it, and he does it better than I do, so I'm just going to read you what he says. He says, The day of judgment will be a public occasion with a public sentence passed. So just imagine on the day that we wake up and we're all before the judgment throne of God. It will be a public occasion. By the way, the Puritans used to practice death in that day of judgment. And that's not a bad discipline to have to run through your mind what that day will be like. But John Sott asks us to do that. He says, imagine the day of judgment will be a public occasion with a public sentence passed. It will require public and verifiable evidence to support it. Therefore, the presence or absence of a saving faith will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works which extend from a saving faith. Now, if you don't understand what that is talking about, think about the apple tree uh, illustration, right? If a tree has apples, those apples do not give life to that tree. We know that. It's the soil that does, and it's the nutrients in the soil. But what do those apples do? They show us that that tree actually has life. And that's the same idea when it comes to our faith. We only have eternal life by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's it. But a changed life shows that we have a changed heart. And that's what Paul is saying and explaining verse 6 through verses 7 and 10. In verse 7 and 10, he says it's those who have an actual saving faith in Jesus Christ that will patiently and repentantly, again, not perfectly, but repentively love and follow the Lord and desire the things that God desires. Why? Because a changed life comes from a changed heart. Again, we're not talking about perfection here. Even when we fail when we're in Christ, we're covered by the righteousness of Christ. But the point is, it's only those who have changed hearts that actually desire the things which God desires. But then he goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, it's those moralists, those hypocrites, those unrepentant sinners that will not pass the day of judgment that will come to us all because they've placed their hope in their own morality and self-righteousness. So do not hear what Paul is not saying. And please do not hear what I'm not saying. Don't go to your wife later and say, Barton Kimbrough was teaching justified by works alone. Okay, I'm not saying that. Scripture is not saying that. The great news of the gospel is that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And you can take that to the bank. But what Paul is saying here, don't, don't diminish this challenge. Because if the work of our hands and the desires of our hearts are not informed by and continually changed by the faith we say that we profess, it is right for us to ask the diagnostic question if our faith is real. And that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12-13, through 13, where he says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. He's not saying to fear God as if you can't trust Him. And he's not saying you can't trust the promises which God gives us in Christ. God is immutable. He will always fulfill His promises. But what Paul is saying, make sure that you've received His promises. Make it sure. Paul says works are not the basis for our salvation, but it is the evidence of a saving faith. And God's judgment is righteous. Now the third piece of evidence, the last piece of evidence, our last point that Paul gives us to show, show us the absurdity of putting our faith in our own moralism and self-righteousness is found in uh, verses 12 through 16. I recently watched a documentary a couple days ago about the status of our judicial system in America. And one of the people that was uh, interviewed was Eric Holder, our firm, former attorney general. 
And I found it interesting that Eric said, beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, our justice system is broken. And he said that, to be sure, there are many wonderful judges and lawyers and police officers that are doing the good fight. They are pursuing justice, but still there are just as many judges, just as many lawyers, and just as many police officers that are committing the sin of partiality. And because of that, our system is broken. For example, right now there are 2.2 million people in America behind bars. 2.2 million. Put that in perspective. The United States has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's inmates. Hundreds of thousands of them are behind bars for nonviolent crimes, a vast majority of which come from low economic, socioeconomic groups or minority groups in our overall culture. We have a very big problem with partiality in the system in, in our country. And thank goodness people have taken notice of it. And there's many smart men and women out there trying to fix the problem. But we must understand that the sin of partiality is not new to the justice system in America. The sin of partiality was very prevalent in the early church. We remember the religious Jews and for the most part the moralistic uh, Gentiles in this passage. The moralistic Jews or rather the religious Jews believed that they were better than other people. They believed because they were the covenant people of God and because they've received the Mosaic law, somehow they were better than other people groups in the population. They believed somehow they were beyond the judgment of God and the rules simply did not apply to them. This is a problem that was also plaguing the moralistic Gentiles. Well, Paul answers that by saying, listen, I don't care who your daddy is. I don't care what your heritage is. And I don't care what your skin color is. Why? Because God's judgment is very much impartial. And it's very important for us to understand the gravity of that. And we see that in verses 12 through 16. Now, there's a couple important things Paul says in this regard. First off, all men are sinners. In 12a, he says, all who have sinned. Well, who is he talking about? If you flip over to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who is Paul talking about in 12a? Every single one of us. He said, listen, man, I don't care who you are. I don't care who your mom and dad is. I don't care if you're a member of a church. I don't care if you're a deacon. I don't care if you brought donuts to Sunday school last week. All of us have sinned. And because of that, he says in 12b, all will be judged with or without the law. Now what in the world does that mean? With or without the law. Again, remember that the major sin problem that Paul is addressing here is that the religious Jews and the moralistic Gentiles were saying, hey, listen, we're not the sinners those nasty, wicked people on the outside of these walls are the sinners, okay? Not us. Those guys out there that have not read the Scriptures, those guys out there that have completely rejected God, those people that aren't members of a church, those are the sinners, not us in here, okay? I'm a church-going man. I'm a Dapper Dan man, is what they're saying. Paul says, listen, not one of us are going to escape this, bub. And here's why. He says, those who have sinned without the law which includes atheists, non-believers who have completely rejected God, never read the Word of God, or tribal people from Africa or so on and so forth, people who have sinned without the law, they'll be judged without the law. And those who have the law, the Jews and the moralistic Gentiles and the Christians in the church, they will be judged with the law. Now how does that work? This is how it works. The rule of judgment is knowledge. And we see this in verses 14 through 15. The rule of judgment is knowledge. He says, first, the Jews and the religious people will be judged by what they know. Well, what do they know? The revealed, special revelation word of God. The Jews had the Mosaic Law. The Christians heard it preached in Scripture or preached in the churches. 
They'll be judged by what they know. They know the law. And that's what they're going to be held to account to. Now, Tim Keller says there is this really dangerous warning here. He says it's extremely dangerous for people to have the word of God and not heed the word of God. Right? And he supports this by looking at verse 13, where Paul says it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law that will be justified. And I know we wipe our brow at that moment and say, well, thank goodness I'm not a hearer of the law, I'm a doer of the law. Well, Paul gives us his best Lee Corso impersonation and says, not so fast, my friends. All right? That's a hypothetical statement. The law of God is very much his rule, his judgment. But he's saying that because it's an impossibility for you and I to fulfill the law. And he tells us this because the word justified in that verse was written in the passive voice, which means that you and I cannot actively justify ourselves based off the things that we do. We must be justified from outside ourselves. And that's what Paul will talk about in chapter 3. But nevertheless, we are judged according to what we know, the law. Now the Gentiles who have never heard the word of God, they'll be judged according to what they know. Well, what do they know? Paul tells us in verse 14 through 15. He says, Gentiles do by nature what the law requires, even though they do not have the law. They show the laws written on their hearts. Now what in the world is he saying? Is he implying that people can have salvation apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Because we know in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Luke tells us, there is no other name by which man must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. So we know that's not the case. So what's Paul saying? What he's talking about is our nature. When you and I were created, you and I and everyone on the face of this earth was created in the image of God. And on our hearts and our souls was imprint His natural law, His law. And we see that in our conscience where every man knows the difference between right and wrong. Our consciences bear witness to it. I, mean, I have a lot of friends that have two-year-olds, and they tell me they, they're called terrible twos for a reason, right? He said, Man, these little kids are just crazy. For real. I mean, it's, it's a headache to have a two-year-old. And he says, they don't know the Ten Commandments. They haven't, known, they haven't memorized those yet. But they certainly know the differences between right and wrong as a two-year-old. It just so happens they usually choose the wrong thing. That's why they call it terrible twos. The law of God has been written on all of our hearts to where in our consciences we know the differences between right and wrong. And Paul says, listen, I don't care who you are, where you've been, what your skin color is, what your background is, every single one of us will be judged. God's judgment is impartial. You'll either be judged by what you know, the written word of God in your hands, or the law written on your hearts. That's why Paul with confidence can say that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 15, end. Now, I've got to tell you, I've never been so more convicted in my life than studying for this passage. And hopefully you feel like you've been dragged over the coals because that's the purpose of it. Paul sums up verse 15 by saying, even the thoughts of our heart will be judged by God. That's the thing to think about, isn't it? Paul wants us to think about that. But my friends, he does not leave us there. God does not leave us there. Paul tells us two very important phrases that foreshadow chapter 3 and verse 16. Those two phrases are, according to my gospel and judged by Christ. Why does he say that? Because friends, yes, we've all sinned and we're on the, the right condemnation of God. But the gospel is our great hope. That's why he says those two phrases. 
He says, according to my gospel. Why does he include the gospel in a passage where he's clearly talking about judgment? This is why. Just like when you go outside of your house at nighttime and you see the beauty of the stars in heaven. You do not see the beauty of those stars without the backdrop of darkness. And my friends, you will never see the beauty and the freedom of the gospel. Nor will you have the ability to receive it if you don't understand the darkness of your own heart. That's why Paul wants us to marinate in this. Because he wants us to see the beauty of what Christ offers us. Then he says, Christ is our judge. Why is that important? Because elsewhere, we're told that Jesus Christ is our divine lawyer. He is our representative. He is our advocate. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Dear children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So what does that mean? On the day of judgment, which will come to us all, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus will come out from behind His judgment throne. And He will plead your case. Then He will return back to His judgment throne and to declare you righteous. That, my friends, is the great news of the Gospel. I said at the very beginning, there's a reason that Paul says the righteousness of God has been revealed. The reason that he phrases that way is because that's exactly what you and I need. He says, don't be foolish. Don't place your hope in your hypocrisy. Don't hide who you are as a sinner. Don't put your hope in your own self-righteousness because you don't have it. But simply receive what Christ freely offers you. My friends, the only question this morning before you go to work is, have you placed your hope in the one who makes you righteous? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of the Gospel. That we're accepted by You not based off our works, but by the works of Christ. And Father, we pray that the reality that we have been covered in the righteousness of Christ would motivate us even more that You would empower us by Your Spirit to follow and love You in all the things that we say and do. And even when we fail, we with boldness and joy shout, my assurity is on Christ and Christ alone. It's in Christ Jesus that all of us as brothers say, Amen. Thanks, brother.